Welcome to Dispatches, a short-form podcast from the old front line, and me, military historian Paul Reed. In these shorter podcasts, we'll tell some of the quieter, smaller stories of the Great War. We'll share books, look at original documents, and take dispatches on the road and visit locations across that landscape of the Great War. It's a winter morning in Flanders, and I mentioned that dispatches will come on the road, and you can hear that I'm literally on the road now with the noise of cars, with the modern world interacting with the old world, because I'm standing at the entrance to a military cemetery from the Great War, Coxida Military Cemetery, a cemetery in the sand dunes. And we're going to go through the gate and enter the cemetery. Now this is a cemetery that's set back from the road amongst the sand dunes and I'm on a little path, it's a frosty path this morning running alongside some modern houses and it's foggy and at this time of year when you visit the old front line you kind of think about conditions on the battlefield more than a century ago that men might not have been fighting necessarily at this time of year but they were still existing in those trenches of the western front and it was pretty cold as it is today. I mean, I've got modern Gore-Tex and decent boots and they had none of that, but yet they were still living in these positions here on the Western Front. And where we are, where this cemetery is located, Coxida is a little seaside town just inside Belgium, just down from Dunkirk and up towards the town of Newport, where we're going to go to later. And that's where the Western Front either began or ended, depending on how you look at it, uh, where the trenches ran out on the beach and the North Sea and Channel coast. So this cemetery, uh, quite a big one, there's over 1,600 burials in here, is a cemetery that is from this part of the front. And we often kind of use that phrase, forgotten front. And if there was ever a forgotten front of the Great War involving British and Commonwealth forces, it would be this part up here at the top end of those trenches of Flanders where British forces were for only a, a short, relatively short period of the First World War. So I'm going to continue down this frosty little path. There were some church bells ringing in the, the distance a minute ago and typically as soon as I've switched this on they've kind of faded away. But we're just coming up to the entrance of the cemetery now. It's a Lutyens design cemetery. Edwin Lutyens, one of the principal architects of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And it's got two pillars at the entrance to the cemetery with kind of funeral urns on top. And then two very distinct shelters. And I'll put some pictures of the cemetery onto the podcast website. I've come into the cemetery and the early morning light is catching the first plot of graves ahead of me. I can see some frost on some cobwebs linking two of the graves together. It's a quiet corner of Flanders. I can hear a bit of the modern world in the background and this is a cemetery amongst the sand dunes. I've got some contemporary images of it and a couple of post-war postcards. I'll put some of these on the podcast website so you can see them. 
and it sits even today amongst these sand dunes. There's a military base just through the trees to my left and some modern houses I can see across to my right and a little pathway that runs along close to it where the local people move to and fro during the day, going to school, going to work, visiting the shops. The kind of modern world exists alongside this old world of the Great War. And this is a cemetery, as I've said, with over 1,600 burials. Most of the men who are buried in here are identified soldiers, so we know who they are. And that is incredibly useful when it comes to understanding these cemeteries because it means we can look at their units, look at their backgrounds, and we can get a kind of sense of the men and, and the regiments and the battalions and the units that pass through this part of the front. And where we are, if I look... Uh, following the line of the sun as it catches the tops of the graves up towards the Cross of Sacrifice. I'm looking out towards where the coast is. And this position here at Coxeda was behind the front line, which was across to my right, up towards the town of Newport, where those trenches met the coast, the top end, or the beginning of the Western Front, depending on you know, how you, what your perspective is of that. And the British Army was only up here for a very short period of the war. The French had fought in this Issa sector, the Belgian Army, of course, in 1914, when the King of the Belgians had ordered the opening of the sluice gates and had flooded the Issa Plain, stopping the German advance along the coast here. And the Belgians had fought the Germans there alongside the French. The front had stabilised and the trenches were dug in that area along the Issa Canal that ran through that area around Newport down towards Ypres further down into Flanders and the French and the Belgians held that sector for much of the rest of the war but in 1917 the British troops moved up here to take part in a possible amphibious landing along the Belgian coast to land troops to bypass the western front positions and land troops to take out some of the key submarine bases German U-boats were harassing the shipping in the North Sea and the English Channel and as part of the objectives of 1917 and eventually as part of the objectives of the Third Battle of Ypres the idea was to break out and sweep up to these submarine bases and this operation, Operation Hush, these men were moved up here to train for an amphibious D-Day style attack on uh, the Belgian coast. But this was something that was not really achievable in the context of the First World War. While they began to look at modifying Mark IV tanks with special tracks to be able to get across the sand and up over the dunes and sea walls and things like that, kind of funnies we'd call them a generation later in the preparation for D-Day, and they were going to use barges to bring the troops in, no landing craft, nothing like that. Um, it was a potential, when we look back on it, for a massacre, really, because the Germans had heavily fortified the coast up at Knockerheist further along. They had a massive gun battery there that could lay down heavy fire, and eventually the plan for this amphibious landing was abandoned. But it did mean that for quite a chunk of 1917, both before and during the commencement of the Third Battle of Ypres, British troops served on this sector, quite a few different divisions. And when I look at the graves that are in here, what's immediately apparent to me is that they're kind of in date order. So I've moved to the back of the cemetery to plot one. And plot one in most cemeteries 
are the original burials. That's where the cemetery either began or if it's a post-war cemetery that's been modified with concentrations, this is where you'll find the original burials. And having seen some late 1917 graves as I first came in, now I've moved to the back here. We're coming into a period of July. I can see there's Gunner Mason the Royal Field Artillery, 14th of July 1917, and I move back to the very back of the cemetery, and we're moving into the earlier part of 1917. So British troops moved up here, initially holding the line, training for this amphibious operation that never came, but it was not a part of the front without inactivity, because... In July 1917, the Germans made a decision to attack the British troops that were defending Newport. And uh, they launched an assault on the British positions that were just on the eastern side of the Issa Canal in the sand dunes on the far side of Newport town. And on the 10th of July, a German attack broke against the Kingsall Rifle Corps and the Northamptonshire Regiment and some of the units of the neighbouring division... So they were part of the 1st Division that had moved up to take part in Operation Hush. And the 32nd Division was just down the road, had a lot of battalions of the Lancashire Fusiliers in it, and the Manchester Regiment and one or two others. Dorsetshires, Charles Dewey, who we mentioned recently on the podcast about books on the Great War, he was up here with the Dorsetshire Regiment, for example. And the attack broke principally against the KRRs and the North Ants, who suffered heavy casualties in that area. Many of their men are commemorated on the Newport Memorial to the Missing. But I would guess, as I walk through this cemetery later, I'm going to find quite a few men from that period as well. But I come right to the back, and here we are, some of the original graves. A lot of gunners I can see around me now, which is not surprising, because both the Royal Field Artillery, the Royal Garrison Artillery and the Royal Marine Artillery had gun positions in the sand dunes here firing on this part of the front. Royal Marine Artillery had the 15-inch howitzers, for example, and they were firing up uh, with heavy guns quite some distance. So those graves kind of uh, mirror the experience of this particular position being a, a gunner's position uh, where field guns, heavy guns were placed to fire in support of the troops up on the front line but as I scan my eyes across the graves I'm beginning to see infantry regiments and there's quite a lot of men from the Highland Light Infantry in here as well. Uh, they had battalions in the 32nd Division and I'm beginning to already see Lancashire Fusiliers and Manchesters and I know that there are, are a lot of graves from all of those regiments within this cemetery. So it's a part of the front where by looking at the headstones we can kind of see knowing what the order of battle of units are we can begin to see a commonality between them because they're essentially the order of battle of these different divisions first division who were up here for a while training then the 32nd division and then later 49th west riding territorial division there's a lot of lads from barnsley uh, buried in here and rotherham from the first fifth york and lanks the local territorial battalion and also the 42nd east lanks division they'd come from Gallipoli to Palestine and Egypt and then to the Western Front in 1917 and they served on this sector too. So it's kind of a, a short period of the war, kind of snapshot of the war, but a lot of different divisions and units involved in it and this cemetery pretty much reflects that. So 
So I've walked now down into a part of the cemetery where I'm seeing quite a lot of graves from the 10th of July 1917. So on the northern part of the Newport front that day, the Kingsville Rifle Corps and Northamptonshire Regiment were holding the line just to the east of the uh, Isa Canal and then to the south around Newport Town and the extension of the Isa Canal towards where the Belgian positions were, that's where the men of the 32nd Division were in the line. And that included quite a few different regiments, but quite a lot of men from the Lancashire Fusiliers. And I'm seeing an awful lot of cap badges of the Lancashire Fusiliers on the headstones as I walk down this row. Not that many North Ants, I think there's a couple in here, but most of their casualties were in the very front line. And what happened there was the Germans bombarded their positions that were right up alongside the beach, kind of cut them off with a box barrage, and also destroyed, demolished with artillery, all of the bridges behind their positions. And the forward trenches were all overrun by the Germans, and a large number of men were taken prisoner because the only means of escape was to swim the Isa Canal. So if you couldn't swim, you couldn't get across that canal and you ended up staying behind and being captured by the Germans. And of the two battalion commanders, the KRR commander was killed, the Northampton's one, he was taken prisoner in his command post, his battalion headquarters. So it was quite a, a tough day for those two battalions. And to the south, the other units came on a tremendous bombardment. Although their positions weren't overrun, they took quite a lot of casualties, some of which we see in here. But the Kingsall Rifle Corps and Northampton's casualties, most of them, most of their dead were probably buried by the Germans in their trenches and their bodies never recovered and their names are commemorated on the Newport Memorial to the missing. The sector then went quiet, the Germans had pushed the line back a bit and the front line now was right alongside the Isa Canal on the northern end of Newport itself as it came up into the kind of entrance to the harbour where the mole, the jetty was and Charles Dewey writes about that sector being there in the trenches after that battle and looking down onto the beach, a place where children had once played and where now there was barbed wire on the sand and it would glint in the moonlight. And there was a strange kind of war with the waves lapping up against where the final trenches were. And out to sea, a naval flotilla would keep a constant guard, as would the Germans with their own naval flotilla so that was the kind of flank of the western front it was a naval flank in the sea so we mentioned in a previous episode about the importance of naval history in the great war and that understanding of the naval side of the defense of that top end of the western front is all part of it and i've just walked up to a couple of australian graves here now this is not an australian sector there were some australian field artillery units up here but there were also Australian tunnellers and they worked on some of the subways for the forward positions so there were tunnels that were dug up towards the front line and there was a mining and boring company that pushed push pipe mines underneath the German positions. I'm not sure that any of those were ever used on any kind of great scale but this is the kind of Anzac contribution, the Australian contribution to this part of the front. I suspect that many Australian visitors to the Western Front battlefields were not aware that Australian soldiers were right up here on this part of the front but there are a handful of graves in here that testify to that and I'm looking, just walked up to Lieutenant uh, uh, Doherty, MC, Australian Field Artillery who was killed here on the 25th of July 1917. 
with his gun somewhere here in the sand dunes. The sun's risen a little bit now as the morning has moved on, illuminating the tops of the graves and the trees in the dunes that surround the cemetery. It's quite an atmospheric cemetery in that respect, in that these are men who died in that kind of sand dune battlefield alongside the town of Newport's in that top end of the Western Front, and here they are buried amongst the sand dunes forevermore in this silent city of the dead. But I think that when you come to visit these cemeteries, you begin to kind of get a way of, of reading cemeteries, really, that you look for things. So you look for commonality. You look for lines of cat badges. You look for headstones close together, and I'm looking at a little collection of that now. Again, two gunners. I mentioned there's a lot of gunners in here. Gunner Bonnell and Gunner Holden, both in the Royal Field Artillery. Very similar numbers, 700836 and 700506. So they're part of probably a territorial field artillery unit, perhaps in the West Riding Division, maybe, who were up here, the Yorkshire Territorials, and they've died the same day, 24th of July 1917, and are buried side by side. And that's not uncommon, men buried side by side by their comrades. And you can kind of almost imagine a little burial here where the men from their battery, perhaps from their gun team, have come to bury these two lads and they've all stood here and laid their mates to rest. And as I mentioned before on the podcast, you know, coming back to the battlefields with veterans all those years ago, that was often an impetus for them to return, to seek out graves like this, to find those comrades that they'd often buried. And then you have graves of infantry soldiers. There's three men in Lancashire Fusiliers here who died on the same day, 22nd of July, 1917. Most likely shellfire, which was the greatest kind of leveller on the battlefield. And you can imagine these three men kind of standing in a trench together and one shell pitches over and kills all three of them instantly. And then they're brought in here for burial. So, you know, as with all these cemeteries, there's so many stories beneath these headstones. And it's nice to wander around to see people have laid personal tributes on the graves. There are photographs pressed up against some of them. So a kind of face brings that that grave uh, to light. And there's a really good website, worldwarocemeteries.com, where they've incorporated quite a lot of photographs of men buried in places like this. They have a page for every cemetery. So I always feel that, you know, on, on one level, kind of all the cemeteries are the same. There's a standard layout. It varies to a degree. There's a cross of sacrifice in here because it's a larger one. There's a stone of remembrance. There's a a register box where you can get the cemetery register and you can look up the names and find out further details and a visitor's book that you can sign and to the casual visitor they probably do all look the same but each one is its own time capsule has its own story and they're not here as I've said before in this podcast these cemeteries are not here by accident they're here because of some kind of event or some reason or some involvement of the British and Commonwealth forces. And this one is here as a principal wartime burial site for the men who were in these trenches at this top end of the Western Front. There were some other smaller cemeteries in this area which were closed. Some moved into here, some moved into Ramscapel Road Cemetery, which is another British cemetery just down the road. But this one has a, a large, large proportion of original wartime burials. And we can kind of come in here and we can, like I say, imagine these men being laid to rest by their comrades in what would have been a very 
strange sector if you'd fought in the mud of Passchendaele or in the cold winter on the Somme in 1916-17. You come here and it's sand and it's dunes and it's beaches. This is not the kind of war that I suspect you, you thought you were going to come here to fight. And again, you know, I, I always find myself when I kind of read these cemeteries and look at them and wander around them, we kind of look at the inscriptions and sometimes they just kind of jump out of you almost as if the soldier is somehow calling to you. Something takes your notice and you look down and you read the inscription. And I'm looking at the grave of Private Jaffray of the Army Service Corps who died on that fateful day of the 10th of July 1917. Possibly he was bringing up ammunition towards the forward zone of the battlefield and was killed by shell fire and his family wrote, Sleep on, we love thee dear, good night. I often think, you know, faced with the choice of what to write on these headstones, what would you write? You know, what would you you add? And there's a lot of reference to, to God and empire and king and country. I'm looking at one now. We thank our God for every remembrance of him. There's kind of a desire to find meaning in sacrifice. Not too many graves that question that. And, you know, I've just walked past another... 10th of July 1917, casualty of the Royal Garrison Artillery, he gave his life for the cause of freedom. And these were the, the values that these men had gone to war for, to fight for the righteousness of their cause and to free gallant little Belgium and stand up for Britain and its wider empire. And it's hard now to kind of make sense of that perhaps more than a century later, but when you stand here amongst the dead of the Great War, and you think what brought them to this point where they would serve and offer up their most precious, precious thing, their, their own life, what would bring them to that point, what would take them on that pathway to coming here where their roads crisscrossed, and for so many of them, more than 1,600 of them in this cemetery, where it came to an end. So the early morning light is, is catching the inscriptions, catching the cap badges, there's something about winter light in these cemeteries and the frost on the grass. The commission work here all year round and I always feel these sites look amazing no matter what time of year that you come to them. And there are so many different units here, perhaps units that you don't always see because this is a position that was behind the front and even when the, the British were here for such a short time they still needed all the infrastructure that was required to keep their men in the line. So there's Army Service Corps men bringing up the ammunition and supplies. I'm looking at a row of Royal Engineers who would have carried out sapper work on the battlefields. I've seen some more Australians here, uh, two gunners from the Australian Heavy Artillery. There's a soldier of the Army Veterinary Corps buried here. And uh, Sergeant Southall, who also died on the 10th of July, 1917. So that day when the Germans put down so much artillery, both on the forward zone of the battlefield and beyond it, no rank, no unit, no place was quite clearly safe. And it kind of reflects the army, I suspect, perhaps you know, in a much bigger way than a typical forward battlefield cemetery does, which has only got men who were in roles that took them to that forward part of the battlefield. In here there's, there's every strand of the army and a lot of Commonwealth nations with the Australians, I've seen a New Zealander in here, I'm just looking at the South African grave over here. And it's also a place where the First World War meets the second because right at the back is a row of graves of men from 
World War II, including a whole row of Canadians who were killed in the liberation of this area in September 1944. So this cemetery, this burial ground, like so many, has a lot to tell us. Those crisscross paths of the First World War here, crossing over with those of the Second, and drawing us in, making us think, and I've already seen one or two names that I'm going to look up and do a bit more research on. The fascination, the eternal fascination of these places, which is what always seems to draw us back to the old front line. You've been listening to Dispatches, part of the Old Frontline podcast, with me, military historian Paul Reed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please think about leaving a review on your favourite podcast platform, giving us a rating, and leaving a comment on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter, and if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash oldfrontline or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.